It is June 2nd. Uh, welcome to the Vegetable Beat, which is a live weekly discussion uh, during the growing season for vegetable producers in the Midwest and Great Lakes region. My name is Matt Kleinhans. I'm with Ohio State University, and I'm uh, serving as today's host of the program. Ben Phillips of Michigan State University Extension is our Zoom engineer. And today we're speaking with Doug Dewan. Uh, Doug is a professor and extension specialist focused on weed management. He directs uh, the Ohio State University OERDC Weed Lab. The URL, the website URL for that lab is owl.osu.edu. His team recently completed a multi-state survey and they developed a, a number of excellent uh, publications focused on herbicide drift, which is the focus of our conversation this afternoon, yeah, especially as, an, as uh, drift involves specialty crops. And as you know, herbicide drift uh, is an ongoing concern, and now is a time of year when that concern or the potential for herbicide drift, uh, herbicide drift can be especially high. So we take all of that into account. We take into account um, uh, my experience as a, as a colleague with Doug and other factors, and the vegetable team uh, very quickly reached the conclusion that an episode on drift is a very good idea and that there would be no better person to help us address it uh, than Doug. And as we speak with him today, we're going to be focusing on understanding a bit of uh, drift, uh, of course, preventing it, and if need be, responding to a drift incident um, if one happens to occur, whether that is uh, perhaps the, the, uh, the result of our action or inaction or, the, or somebody else's. And of course, herbicide drift um, is a particularly keen topic you know, to discuss with vegetable and specialty crop growers, excuse me. Um, in just a few minutes, we'll get into that conversation. And before that, I want to set a bit of background as usual. We want to answer as many questions as possible about Drift for you today. If you're listening live via Zoom at glveg.net slash listen, or by Facebook at facebook.com slash veggiebeat, please submit your questions to the chat or Q&A box as, or as a Facebook comment. We will try to answer those questions as we go along, but if not, we will try to answer them towards the end of our today, uh, uh, the session today. Certified Crop Advisor CCA credits are also available to live listeners this week. And if you are in Michigan, Restricted Use Pesticide, RUP certification credits are also available. And if you'd like CCA or RUP credits, please put your name and email in the chat or in the Facebook comment section so the proper connection uh, to that certification can be made. So with that bit of background, let's get down to business and get into our uh, topic at hand, which is herbicide drift with our guest, uh, Dr. Doug Dewan. Uh, Doug, uh, let's start us off, if you, if you could, with just a couple of minutes on your background and perhaps your specific interest in herbicide drift. Um, people learning of your expertise or already knowing of your expertise in, in weed management would say, oh, it's a logical connection between an interest in weed management and herbicide drift. Um, but of course, weed management is complex, large uh, topic and an area of work. And so uh, learning um, a little bit more about how you came to be specifically interested in drift would also be uh, helpful for our listeners. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Um, so uh, I've been working with herbicides now and, and weed control using herbicides for about 40 years, uh, 20 years in two different Canadian provinces before coming to Ohio State in 98. And so I've been here at OSU since that time as the state specialist for weed management and fruit and vegetable crops. And um, 
Although I've not, my career has not strictly been revolving all around herbicides, herbicides are pretty central to the management practices of the farmers that I've tried to help in my career. So kind of naturally, uh, I got interested in, in herbicide use and, and have, you know, run hundreds of experiments over the years. And there's a real sense in which herbicide use is kind of a risk management technique. In fact, weed control is risk management. And uh, using herbicides requires kind of a fairly uh, quantitative approach to assessing the risk uh, associated with your use because they kill plants, they kill crops. Uh, herbicide drift has been something that I probably encountered within the first or second year of, of my, my career uh, in New Brunswick, Canada, uh, but it wasn't something that was kind of front and central and that we dealt with all the time, it seems, until recently. In the last, I would say, about 15 years, the incidence and the severity of the, of the effect of herbicide drift when it has occurred has tended to be much on the increase. And so we, it's in the news all the time these days. And it's something that I routinely and regularly get asked about both within Ohio as well as uh, from people from other states and, and from Canadian provinces too. Yeah, you mentioned quantitative aspects and, and risk management. And I know that we'll get into this a little bit later. Um, but th thinking about this uh, conversation, um, one thought that came to my mind is that we might be talking about probabilities of some one sort or another <laughs> from time to time, right? With very few absolutes, just more like, is it more likely, is it less likely, that sort of thing. Um, you mentioned that the incidence and severity has have increased in recent years. Um, would you put a finger on uh, one or two factors that might have uh, allowed that to allow that to be the case? Is it is changing chemistry, uh, more crops being next to each other that are you know uh, being uh, sprayed differently, what have you? There might be more factors than that. Yeah, and I'll preface it by saying, in terms of of the quantitative aspect of it, you know, we never would have thought that every farmer would experience drift at some time in his or her career. Uh, and hopefully that's not the case, but I, I know I've been caught saying that it's not, you know, drift is not a matter of if it's a matter of when. And I do think that's the proper point of view for a farmer to take respecting the likelihood of drift taking place. Uh, God bless them if it doesn't happen, you know, and, and thank, be thankful for that. But Chances are, uh, in this part of the United States and in adjacent Canada, if you're growing fruits and vegetables, sooner or later, you're going to be hit by drift. And um, why? I think there's, you know, there's probably more than the reasons that I would give right now for that. But I think uh, there are driving factors that have both come from the way farmers control weeds that's evolved over the last 40 years last 30 years in particular, and also changes in agricultural, uh, our agricultural landscape. So on the, the way farmers control weeds prior to the 1980s, almost all weed control uh, in row crops in the United States was done with pre-emergence herbicides, which tended to be applied sometimes before planting uh, or very soon after seeding had taken place. Starting in the 1980s uh, with herbicides like Post uh, as, a, as a grass killer, we began, weed control began to move into the post-emergence era. And now most weeds are controlled post-emergence in, in row crops. Um, and uh, because post-emergence herbicides tend to not provide very much, if any, residual weed control, it often is necessary to spray a couple of times. Um, 
Yeah, I would say, you know, a couple of times is probably pretty ordinary, which again, shoves that application timing for those herbicides later into the season with greater coincidence with the production of fruit and vegetables and, and particularly with the flowering stage, which is, which is by far the most sensitive stage in most fruit, fruit and vegetable crops. So, um, and then most recently, we have had a shift on vast acreages of row crops in the United States uh, to herbicides that, if they drift, are going to cause a lot more damage to fruits and vegetables than anything we have ever experienced before, at least on this mass. And that's, that's the uh, development of 240 and dicamba-resistant cotton and soybeans, pretty much. Um, with applications now extending, inter I mean, the, the intent has been that they would be used well into July, although now there are restrictions on when they can be sprayed, particularly for dicamba, uh, because of problems that have developed. But we're talking about, you know, just complete overlap with fruits and vegetables. And then on the, the, the farming system side, I, I'm sure there's data on this. I don't have it, but I think there's a general consensus that that as farmers have diversified in the, in the type of enterprises that they're involved in, we have a lot more uh, landscape overlap in, with uh, grain crops and with, with fruit and vegetables, and not just fruits and vegetables, but also with more uh, specialty grain and, and fiber crops like lentils and, and uh, hemp would be one. I don't think we have very much hemp, but there might be. And that would be another example of diversification on the agronomic crop side with crops that are going to be sensitive to the herbicides that are used on, on corn and soybean in particular. So, yeah, you mentioned a number of factors, major shifts in agricultural landscape, changes in chemistry, certainly changes in the timing of application. Um, for some growers, um, I'm, I'm just speculating, some growers may feel a bit protected uh, we have a very thriving local regional food system and, of course, local uh, supply chains. We obviously have a large and growing population of organic growers who are quite possibly not using the same kinds of chemistries, right? And so also uh, the same may be true of their neighbors. Is it realistic to think that even they, perhaps surrounded by suburbia, um, are still subject to the risk of, of drift offhand? Yeah, so... I mean, I think it's it's generally a fact, and there are probably lots of exceptions to this, that even in those sort of peri-urban zones, we still have a fair bit of grain production occurring next door to where we're going to have fruit and vegetable production. Um, but even in the absence of that, um, there's a couple of factors that come to mind. And, and of course, this has nothing to do with corn and soybeans, but there, you know, there is a fair bit of, of lawn spraying that does take place and as well as... and, and um, a lot of lawn sprays, certainly not all, but a lot of lawn sprays are going to contain 240 and or dicamba as well as at least one other growth regulator type herbicide, one or more growth regulator type herbicides. And we do run into that pretty frequently. Um, there's, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of dicamba depending on the location. You know, there's, there's a lot of these of dicamba 240 and glyphosate that are being used on large acreages. And usually it's combinations of, of glyphosate with 240 or glyphosate with dicamba, as well as other active ingredients in the mix. And so, um, you know, as you, as you increase the acres treated and as you increase uh, the frequency of applications, the number of applications that take place, you know, you have this kind of perfect storm that develops. So, um, you know, in the Northeastern United States, 
the maritime provinces um, where there's lots of fruit and vegetable production, it seems like relatively lower likelihood. But when you get these large acres, large acreages of corn and soybean in particular, and that, that would certainly be the case in Southern Ontario as well, um, you're going to, again, kind of have that perfect storm of where opportunity, it's not right to call it opportunity, but, you know, where, you know, the, the probabilities all come together in a, in a way that's not good for the fruit and vegetable farmer. That drift is going to happen. It's that probability functioning again. So we, yeah. uh, again, folks, we're, we're speaking with Dr. Doug Dillon of Ohio State University, and we're focused on herbicide drift. And our theme today is understanding drift, uh, learning what we can about how to prevent it, and if need be, how to respond to it. And Doug, to a non-expert like me, okay, and I very much consider myself to be a non-expert on this topic, drift can seem to be fairly straightforward. You know, an application of an herbicide is made, the material moves to a non-target site, and then it, the damage to the crop or the plants there occurs. Um, it may be cut and dry, if you will. Um, but to a non-expert, uh, but to you as an expert, it may not be quite that simple, you know, there may be symptoms that resemble herbicide drift that actually aren't, or uh, drift can actually be difficult to diagnose, or, or uh, if you will affirm that it confirm that it actually happened. It, is it cut and dry? Is it is it a little bit more nuanced? Where, with all of your experience, you know, dealing with drift, where have you encountered this uh, iffy zone, if you will, this gray zone of did it, did it not occur? You know, when did it occur, and so on? How 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 do you tease that apart? Well, I would say that, you know, the, the, almost with regularity, when we get samples submitted to the lab, you know, somebody like plants that don't look right. And a lot of times they, you know, the, the foliage, you know, a disease organism can be eliminated relatively quickly. So then the pathologist tends to look for other, other, other explanations and often, uh, you know, I'll, I'll get asked to take a look at, at these things. And so you're looking at something that's really in isolation from any sort of causal basis for it right and uh you know that so that, that creates creates some some certain challenges and um interest, it's an interesting one too with the greenhouse uh issue because a lot of times these plants look very much like they have been affected by herbicide drift so what we often see are the type of symptoms that you would get from a growth regulator like 240 or dicamba and um, uh, we don't have really solid data on this yet, except to say that we have, there's increasing evidence that, that composts and, and planting medias can sometimes be contaminated with really very, very low concentrations, probably not 240 and dicamba in this case, but some other herbicides that are used, uh, particularly kind of in domestic and, and urban type environments end up in grass clippings, end up in leaves, and, and they're very persistent and, and they can come through. So that's one of those times when you can get something that looks like drift, which may have zero to do with drift, which is the movement from, uh, from one site to another site, either as a vapor or as a droplet. Interestingly, there's still movement involved though. You know, it's, it's going from maybe the application on a lawn to a composting facility and then ending up in someone's greenhouse. 
we know it happens, and it's and it's a major concern of the composting industry. Uh, in a more general sense, the American Phytopathological Society, and I hope I said that right, and not offending any of my pathology colleagues, uh, you know, they they actually will say in their you know in their kind of what is a disease that herbicide drift is classified as an environmental disease, and uh, you know it it shares a lot in common with other causes of environmental diseases that are, we usually think of as pollutants, things like ozone, uh, can cause symptomology on plants that could be mistaken for herbicide drift very easily. Uh, ethylene in, in a greenhouse environment, certainly, I mean, it's not necessarily a to- an environmental pollutant, but it, you know, it, it, in terms of its physical characteristics and interaction with atmosphere, it kind of behaves that way can cause symptoms that really look a lot like, like uh, growth regulator type herbicide. So um, even to the extent that the symptomology is not necessarily different than the symptomology that you might get from a microbial disease causing agent like a virus. So um, there's lots of opportunity to get false positives for drift. And um, this is kind of, and and also for misdiagnosis, I would say, uh, or or uncertain diagnosis. And and unfortunately, some of that ends up on websites and in the internet where, uh, and and can be quite misleading. So uh, it's usually best to get someone who's had more experience looking at this type of specific problem. Uh, In my, that's what I've seen. I think it's, it's, it's not, it's one of those areas where there's some experience in particular is needed. Right. I mean, I think you, you raised a number of very excellent points. Uh, in my view, there is a case where you as an expert might receive a sample, but that sample and maybe, or maybe not some information about that sample, where it was collected and you know what's going on around it. And context can be very, very important uh, is what I, I think I heard you, heard you uh, allude to that. And so it, in the, in the process of diagnosis, we have to rule out other potential causal factors, right, that may lead right. to the same symptom, symptom, symptoms. And for that, you know, more than one person may be needed. For that, some careful analysis might be needed. Uh, so for that, maybe even laboratory analysis would be involved. Um, it, it may not be quite as simple as, well, my leaves are curled or, you know, they're, they're exhibiting uh, signs that is classic, you know, herbicide damage. Yes, that that is true, but we need to we need to be um, diligent and, and rule out poten- other potential causes while still being aware of what was said up front. You know, it may be a question not so much of if, but more more when. And if that time has arrived, it has arrived. Um, unfortunately for somebody, um, they'd want a they'd want a a qualified uh, diagnosis for sure. Are there is there a process that you generally recommend? I know that we're reaching people in multiple states. And, uh, you know, and uh, in other areas, is there a general process that you would recommend that somebody take as their initial steps? We're kind of getting into, okay, we're responding to a potential drift incident now. Um, Well, we'll circle back on some other topics, but if somebody suspects that drift might have occurred, what is their best next step uh, in your your view? Yeah, so so one of the things that happens is, is, um, I would say, it's not uncommon for a drift event to occur and for it to go for a week or so without, you know, before people really say, you know, I think I've got herbicide drift here and time is time, time can be of the essence in this. Um, So I think that, 
you know, the, the fruit and vegetable producers should do as much as they can reasonably to familiarize themselves with, with the symptomology that might be caused, particularly with these growth regulator herbicides that are being used a lot more today. Uh, with glyphosate as well, they cause, there's some overlap in the symptomology, but there are some differences as well. Um, I think the main thing is to, you know, know, know what a healthy crop looks like and, and to move quickly when you see something that's unhealthy. And I mean, that's just makes sense, whether it's a, a herbicide drift or a disease or even, even, uh, you know, uh, I can imagine a scenario where a novice might even mistake insect eggs or something like that for something other than what they are present on the crop. So that's really important. Uh, if you're kind of in a position where you, where you know what to look for and you respond quickly, then I think that uh, looking for patterns would be the first thing that, that's important. Uh, are the symptoms the same across the entire field? Or is there a gradation of symptomology from more severe to less severe as you move across the field in any particular direction? Um, is there is there a pattern of wild non-cultivated plants outside of the field that uh, suggests directionality and perhaps movement in some cases from an, from another field that maybe is not too far away, maybe maybe just next door, maybe maybe with an intervening field in between you and that field. But if you you know if you go out and look, uh, particularly with the kind of herbicides that we're talking about, there's a ton of there's many wild species that are very sensitive to these herbicides and will show the effects, similar effects to what you're going to see in your crop. Um, don't just look down, look up, because in many cases, looking up into trees as well, and certainly hedgerow species as well, uh, maybe where you actually see the pattern suggesting movement from a particular area. Um, Sampling is kind of the obvious question that comes to mind. You know, should should I sample when I see this? And um, it you know it really comes down to when you detect when you've observed that that drift takes place. So with uh, glyphosate is a little bit slower acting than 240 and dicamba, quite a bit actually. 240 and dicamba and other growth regulator herbicides, uh, the you know typical June, early July weather, you're going to see it if you're if you're used to looking at a healthy crop, you're going to notice something wrong 24 hours after the drift event took place. That's the time to sample, and I always encourage. And you'll see this in our fact sheets. You know, like don't wait until you've had a drift event to develop a relationship with an analytical laboratory. So, uh, and you know, that doesn't mean you have to sign a contract with anyone. You just need to go on their website, find out a lot of them will, will list. We need so many, a certain volume of leaves, for instance, and these are the leaves that you should sample. And, you know, even if you're not sure that you're going to send them to us, how you should store them in the interim, which usually in most cases probably is going to mean that you're going to freeze them. And then, you know, when you take those samples, like where did they come from in your, in your field, mapping that is the right way to do it. You know, map on your field, on your field map, where each sample came from, label it accordingly. 
have someone take a picture of you taking the samples and putting it in the freezer, just so there's kind of a chain of custody things. It's, it's kind of common sense, uh, and we don't have time to get into it in detail, but chain of custody is important. Um, and then I guess the other big question is, do I contact the state regulatory agency? Um, that's kind of an individual decision, I think, that has to be made. Um, it's wrought with a lot of potential issues that might result, that might develop as a result. Of, for instance, in the case of dicamba, there, as far as I know, there are no tolerances for residues of dicamba in fruit and vegetable crops. So if a detect were to be found by the state regulatory agency, then you're in kind of a crop destruct situation. You can't sell your crop. The cost of that drift to you as a veg, fruit and vegetable farmer just went through the ceiling because you can't even sell anything. And although nobody would say this understandably, uh, do we kind of think that a lot of, a lot of vegetable producers, they don't contact the state just because they're concerned that that could happen. And, or if it's a processor that the process processing company won't take the crop. Uh, the other thing that happens when you get the state regula regulator involved, uh, one is they tend to be slow. And then two, um, they can be slow getting out there. They can also get out there in a prompt manner. I've seen both, heard of both. Uh, they're usually quite slow in getting the results done. And, um, but the, let's say that uh, they come up with a negative. They don't detect anything in the crop. And that's actually the most common outcome. Even if you take the samples, you may not get a positive, even though you've got all kinds of foliar effects on your crop. And that's because these crops are the most sensitive indicator of these herbicides. They're more sensitive than any analytical instrument could ever be. Okay. So, um, but particularly if the state takes those samples and finds, gets a negative, then, uh, and I'm not a lawyer, but my sense is that when you get into the legal system, that state regulator saying we didn't find anything there can be kind of a end of story type of scenario. So you do have to think this through, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't. There probably are examples of where it's a, the right thing to do and, and, and a beneficial thing to do, but it's, it's just not a simple yes or no answer to that. I think I've answered, I've kind of exhausted my possible things to do. There's probably stuff I've left out. Maybe we'll get back to those later. No, those are, if uh, you know, people are listening and uh, listening live here now, and of course to the recording later, um, those are a series of very actionable, I would call it, call it that, you know, actionable recommendations and a very um, appropriate description of the rock and a hard place scenario that people can find themselves in when they suspect the drift may have occurred. Um, and there, there are, you know, multiple perspectives on, on an incident or a situation like that one. There may be the, the person who's affected, there may be a third party, and that could, you know, somebody that would be recruited and there may be the so-called offending party now um doug we uh, you know we know that special crop growers vegetable growers included are also applying herbicides um we don't want to go off on a tangent too much but drift can be within a farm too can it not i mean uh, drift can you know one could cause a drift problem on their own farm and their own and their own plantings and we shouldn't ignore that is that is that correct yeah yeah for sure in fact uh, you know in those first 20 25 years of my career I would think I was at least as equally likely to come to the conclusion that the drift had occurred on 
the farm because of something the farmer had done on their own farm in their own crop or on, on a, you know, maybe a grain crop that was next door to their crop, but, but still their grain crop. Um, that's still taking place, undoubtedly. Um, it's just that rel- in terms of relative to the, you know, today, we, it's more, more frequent to see it being off target, off, off target movement. And, and really that's, you know, I, I think I feel confident in saying that that's because of the chemistry being used and, and the acres, the acres that are treated are different today. Um, and the chemistry is different, both in terms of the propensity to move away from the treated field through volatility and uh, because of the greater toxicity of the herbicides being used to specialty crops. Okay. Um, if we could, just for, a, just for a, a, a brief minute, if we could return to the uh, kind of the peri-urban, uh, ex-urban uh, scenario a scenario in which uh, a vegetable grower may find themselves surrounded by or, you know, very, very near landscapes that are managed primarily for their aesthetics, their beauty and other environmental services, but mainly for enjoyment, if you will, and, and, and those kinds of benefits, not so much for farming. A situation in which that landscape might, you know, the herbicides might be applied to, to that landscape, either by the homeowner or property owner themselves or a contracted party. Um, do you have a sense for whether or not it would be a, 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 the best case scenario would be to have those applications be in the hands of, you know, certified applicators, uh, perhaps, um, you know, de-emphasizing the role of the individual homeowner going to their big box store or somewhere down the road, a store down the road and getting an off the shelf material um, or does it not matter? I mean, do we, do we think that the, those probabilities that you mentioned up front, would they decline if more of that, um, if this exurban peri-urban landscape were to be managed, if you will, the, app- the herbicide applications thereon be managed by a, a team of specialists, if you will, or am I, am I dreaming, uh, dreaming here? Well, I think, you know, certified applicators probably treat the majority of those landscapes already. And that's probably a good thing. They still do applications that result in drift. But if everybody was out with a, you know, a backpack sprayer or a canister sprayer, you know, stop and pump it up. And right after you've pumped it up, the pressure is, you know, probably 75 or 80 PSI. And then 90 seconds later, you stop and pump it up again. And those, that, those high pressures produce the small droplets that are much more driftable than the droplets that are produced sort of at the point that you begin to think, I need to pump this sprayer up again. And, 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 uh, you know, just because of inexperience and, and uh, not knowing, I think it's more likely that any given homeowner is likely more likely to make a mistake. Um, you know, for all farmers, for all, for all vegetable growers, whether you're close to the city or whether you're out in the, in the, you know, the rural countryside somewhere, I think the most important thing that you can do is communicate. And, and when, you know, ask like, what, what proactive measures can a grower take? Well, there's, you know, when drift happens, there's no barrier that you're going to be able to be able to put up that's going to protect your crop. Uh, Unfortunately, greenhouses might circumstances give some protection. We would sure hope that they would. Although with ventilation and issues around ventilation, there may be lots of times that they're potentially even pulling outside air in kind of selectively. So uh, 
most of the time, the number one thing you can do to reduce the likelihood of a drift event is to talk to the people who are surrounding your property. And, you know, that's hard to do when you've got a subdivision around you, I think. Uh, but you can use your Facebook page. Signage, uh, the Red Gold Company, I think, from, from Indiana, and they also operate in Ohio, I think they concluded that signage really did make a difference. And so all of their growers, and they really were the ones kind of behind the uh, the uh, field watch program that now is used in several states and several, several provinces. And... Uh, that we have uh, our, the late, our friend, the late Steve Smith, to thank for that. Uh, and um, that was his vision. And it's made a difference. And you can do that in a peri-urban environment as well. You can use signage. And I think Facebook, a lot of people who have direct relationships with their customers and with their community use Facebook and Twitter and other ways to communicate those things. Fantastic conversation, folks. We're, we're speaking with, with Dr. Doug Dillon of Ohio State University, uh, weed management specialist, and uh, uh, as you heard earlier, a uh, person who's been focused on uh, herbicide drift and a number of aspects of it for, uh, for some time now. And our conversation is going to wrap up here in the next few minutes. But before we leave the conversation, leave, leave Doug, we want to cover a couple of more uh, topics uh, specific to understanding, preventing, and responding to drift. And Doug, you mentioned um, up front that, you know, there's, uh, it's perhaps a question of if not, uh, when, not if, uh, you outlined a, a quite a few circumstances that can, uh, major factors that can contribute to the potential for drift and that it's a largely a probability function, if you will. In all of your years of experience, and I know I'm, uh, this is a, uh, it might be an unfair question, so you can feel free to rephrase it. Um, are there a set of circumstances that, uh, fit nicely into kind of your pantheon of causes of drift. These are, are associated with incidents of drift. These are the three things that almost always uh, occur or, you know, were, were a factor when a drift incident occurred. Um, again, I might be, uh, I might be looking at this incorrectly. I'm just wondering if there are a handful or less of these circumstances that seem to be present almost, you know, in, in a majority of the cases that you, that you've seen that, People hearing hearing you say what they might be, people would begin to think about their own their own situation. Yeah. So, um, you know, if if you were to, I think, interview twenty people who've looked at drift problems over the years, like going back, say, thirty years of experience, they would probably say, until relatively recently, most of the drift uh, cases that I had investigated involved some form of particle drift, basically the movement of small droplets. Uh, for you know anywhere from relatively short distances to some pretty significant distances, and um, you know to quite a degree that's controllable because it's a function of droplet size and and wind speed, if you will. And the smaller the droplets, the more likely they are to move in the wind. And you can you can model this, and the models are probably fairly fairly accurate in terms of predicting what actually would take place. And so, you know, there's, there's ways to control that, to minimize the likelihood of that, that happening, you know, don't spray when it's too windy and, and use droplets and pressures that produce relatively large droplets and minimize the number of small droplets that are produced. So, um, you know, but sometimes it's not wind sometimes, in fact, maybe even more often than wind being a factor, because even a pretty small droplet, has kind of a limited distance that it's going to just blow in the wind. Uh, 
gravity's going to kind of pull it out and it's going to drop. But when you get inversion conditions, everything is off. So inversion conditions are basically when you get a layer of cold air that's close to the ground. When I say close to the ground, maybe, you know, anywhere from three or four feet thick up to maybe 12 to 20 feet thick. And on top of that, there's a layer of warmer air. And so that cold air is trapped near the ground surface. And my, you know, micro droplets, very small droplets are always formed to some degree when you force the liquid through a small nozzle at high pressure. And uh, so you always get some of those and they do get suspended in that cold air. The best way to think of an inversion is that foggy morning or foggy, foggy night when there's a layer of fog close to the ground, or you have a campfire and the smoke just goes horizontal, those kind of conditions. Think of uh, clear, cool, crisp, starry nights in spring, summer, and early fall. You almost always get an inversion under those conditions, starting often two or three hours or more before sunset and extending another two or three hours after sunset. Think of them as being very still with almost no air movement at all. Perfect inversion conditions. Probably more drift events, when I look at all of them that I've investigated, there have probably been more that have involved inversions than, than wind blowing droplets away. So that's, that's kind of the big scenario. And those are all manageable and preventable. Um, the other side of it uh, is the volatility issue. And when it comes to volatility, uh, that's proving to be, volatility, of course, is just the the uh, tendency, the characteristic of any particular molecule to evaporate some of the molecules up into the atmosphere, usually under low humidity and warm temperatures. Uh, you know, think of perfume, think of the smell of a rose, think of the smell of gasoline when you spill a little. You're experiencing volatility uh, at those times. So, um, as I said, that's proving to be a much more difficult. Um, phenomenon to manage than we ever imagined that it would be. And even the so-called non-volatile formulations of some of the new herbicides, the evidence is increasing that they're not actually non-volatile after all. So um, yeah, I think you, Matt, you were kind of asking me about how to manage, manage that. And, and when it comes to, so, so there is something that, you know, you can do, and this is kind of more of an outreach to the grain grower uh, who's next to a vegetable grower, to a fruit grower. Like you can choose formulations that are less likely, less likely to volatilize. For instance, when we have burn downs involving 2,4-D and Roundup and drift occurs, it almost always seems to involve, not exclusively, but uh, over and over again, I hear isooctyl ester, which is usually listed on the label as being 2,4-D low volatile ester. Well, at this point, I think the science says there are much safer forms of 2,4-D to use than the low volatile ester. You can just simply use an amine formulation, which is, is you know, 30 or 40 years of using these has shown that they don't volatilize as much as the ester formulations do. So if you've got a vegetable farmer next to you and you're burning, burning down, don't use this it happens to be the cheapest. And I think that's why it gets used all the time. Spend 50 cents more per acre, or, or, you know, even if it costs you a couple of bucks more per acre, if it keeps you out of the courts, that's going to be a couple of dollars per acre well spent. Yeah. So my ear listening, listening to, I caught two, two areas, just kind of a bit of a summation. 
first I, I heard management that speaks to the to the to the grower or the applicator, I should say, the applicator's choice of conditions under which you know the equipment that they're using, the the herbicide that they're using, the choices that they can make, and then the conditions specific to when that herbicide is applied. I, I think it's important to keep in mind. I know that there are some people listening here today that might just have a conceptual uh, concern, you know, with herbicides. Period. Right. And um, let's just say, if if you will, I will say. You know, herbicides are with us. They're a unique and important tool for uh, in weed management. Chances are that whenever a drift occurs, it's not intentional. <laughs> There's not a gross abuse or misuse of, of the chemistry, if you will. There may have been poor decisions made during, you know, decision on what chemistry to use or what equipment to use or what pressure, what droplet size and the conditions under which it was applied. But chances are the drift was definitely not intentional. It was just a series of decisions uh, that led, led, led to that. I hope that's, I hope that's fair. Um, we've covered a lot of territory today, and I know that there are probably questions that uh, this conversation will raise with other people. You, I mentioned your program at the website at the, at the beginning. It's owl.osu.edu. I mentioned that you had conducted your you and your team had conducted a survey about drift and released some fact sheets. Are there other drift related resources that you uh, to end the conversation here briefly? Uh, other drift related resources that you recommend people look into or um, have in mind uh, as, as they move forward? Yeah, let me just let me just say, Matt. Thanks for mentioning the the fact sheet and the survey. The survey is not actually closed. It's still open until June the 11th. Uh, not all states, and unfortunately, I don't think we have any of the Canadian provinces covered covered in in that survey. But it is still open until the 11th. Um, and uh, we have about 320 responses so far. We'd like to hear from anyone else who wants to, whether you've experienced drift or not experienced drift, it'll take you between five and 10 minutes to complete. It's available online. And I'm guessing that maybe Ben and others can, can get the, the link for that posted so it's readily available. Uh, we'd really like to hear from you because what we're hoping is that the data that we get are gathering through this survey will actually be used to help make better decisions about about uh, herbicide registrations as well as as uses that are allowed and not allowed going forward into the future. And then those uh, fact sheets, I think we now have a series of four fact sheets that we, uh, um, um, Steve Myers from Purdue University was one of the uh, members of the team that put that together as well. And those are available uh, through the North Central IPM uh, website, as well as through our website. Um, a lot of the stuff that I've talked about today, just about everything that we've talked about today is covered in one or more of those fact sheets, maybe in a little bit more systematic way, because, you know, just in conversation, we jump around, right? Sure. Uh, so I would, I would really recommend that you get those. You can download them as PDFs and print them, or you can just use them on, on the website, but they cover all of these things and, and more. That's fantastic. We will leave the conversation there and, and move on to our uh, pre, prelude for the, for the uh, next session. Uh, Doug mentioned North Central, I, uh, North Central Integrated Pest Management Center, the NCIPM as it's known, uh, center. This show, uh, which is the Great Lakes Vegetable Producers Network, is put on by a group of extension educators and researchers from across the Great Lakes region, and it is sponsored by that North Central IPM Center. Uh, we broadcast live via Zoom at 12.30 Eastern, 11.30 Central every Wednesday from the first week of March to the first week of September. 
we interview farmers, researchers, uh, uh, extension folks like you've heard Doug today and others about topics that are relevant to vegetable growers. Please join us next week uh, as Ben Phillips, who has been our Zoom engineer today, uh, working behind the scenes. Ben is a very busy person. Ben will interview Annie Claude uh, from the University of Minnesota and Courtney Weber from Cornell University regarding strawberry production for vegetable growers. Doug, I'd like to thank you again for being our guest here today. Uh, thanks to all the people who are listening uh, and who join us. I wish you a great week. Uh, we'll talk with you next Wednesday, same place and same time. Thank you very much. Okay, thanks for the invitation.